As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. We've got a great interview with you um, for you today uh, with the academic Catherine Mooney who is here to talk about um, the black uh, horse racing star of the 1870s and 1880s, um, Isaac Murphy, um, perhaps the, the most famous um, horse rider uh, of the Reconstruction era um, and one of the the first um, black sporting stars. But his story is more complicated than that. Um, he His story exists within the context of the Reconstruction era. Um, as Eric Foner calls it, uh, America's uh, failed revolution or uh, incomplete revolution. 
where the struggle to create a multiracial democracy uh, stalls and eventually founders. And the story that you're about to hear uh, about Isaac Murphy is very instructive. It's the story of one individual, but it tells us an awful lot about the period. Anyway, I'll finish there and we'll go to the interview. I hope you enjoy. Um, Catherine is a fascinating uh, source of information uh, on this era. And um, uh, yes, let's let's carry on. Okay, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And I'm delighted to have the James P. Jones Associate Professor of History at Florida State University, Catherine Moon. You see, I got that. That was done perfectly. Um, Catherine Mooney. Um, and Catherine is here today to talk um, about the life of Isaac Murphy, um, a, a fascinating figure. A, um, a, 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 a exceptional black athlete, a jockey, um, who um, lived during the Reconstruction era, um, whose life was really a kind of like a mirror of this um, moment of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, this moment of kind of ideological conflict, this battle for ideas for the shape of post-slavery America. Um, that emerged um, after the after the Civil War. So, without further ado, I'm going to welcome uh, Catherine to the podcast. And um, Catherine, tell us firstly um, a bit about the life of Isaac Murphy, and then let's talk a bit about how the book came about and and the significance of the research. Over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so. I began sort of looking into this because I had gotten interested in African-American jockeys when I wrote my first book. And once you discover Isaac Murphy, you kind of are, I think, inevitably drawn to him. Uh, and I should say I'm a racing fan. So I was drawn to him as an athlete and also as somebody who's interested in this period, because as you said, I think really brilliantly, um, his life really is a mirror for this. So he's born in 1861 in slavery and slavery ended in Kentucky because it was not a, an official Confederate state uh, in 1865 at the end of the war. So he was four years old when slavery ended. And he, when he's about 12 or 13, becomes a professional horseman. And by the time he's 18, he is nationally acclaimed at this point. Horse racing is the biggest mass audience sport in the United States mm -hmm. uh, in the 70s and the 1880s. And by, I would say, the middle of the 1880s on to 1890, so for about five years, he's probably the most famous Black athlete in America. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I would say, one of the sort of templates for how black male uh, celebrity athletes are sort of, you know, understood, lauded, treated uh, in this country. And that was one of the extraordinary things about the research was was how similar uh, many of the things he, he goes through are to, to today. And he's, you know, he's a stupendous figure in racing uh, since it's Kentucky Derby time. I should say he won three Kentucky Derbies. Uh, which was a record for its time. He's the first man to win back-to-back -back Kentucky Derbies. 
But he's also, of course, somebody who's living with sort of the encroachment of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And it's sometimes hard to trace that because he didn't talk about it a lot. I'm sure because he knew that that was not something people wanted to hear about, uh, particularly the people who employed him. Mm-hmm. But if we, and we can, when we talk about the research, we can talk about, you know, figuring this out, but he has this very tight circle of friends, some of whom are, are, you know, working at the track, some of whom are not, but he's certainly in a friend group with a lot of civil rights activists. So I'm yeah. sure he, he was very uh, politically aware of civil rights. He was, and I'm sure he was supportive of them. It just wasn't something he, he talked about, but even though he didn't talk about it, he becomes, I think, a symbol of civil rights activism precisely because he's so he's so famous and he's so successful. Yeah. And civil rights activists sort of take him up as a, mm-hmm. you know, this is the face of the new America. Right. And mm-hmm. and we can talk about the the consequences of that for his career. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's certainly one of the reasons that his career experiences a significant nosedive. Um, mm-hmm. that and the physical consequences of his profession, which for him were were devastating. Mm-hmm. So, if you fast forward, a, you know, a hundred years during the kind of the, sef- the second civil rights era, you have sports stars and musicians and entertainers, everyone from Sidney Poitier to Harry Belafonte to James Brown to Muhammad Ali, who all reach a point in their careers um, where you know, in all of those cases, activism ran through their veins. But they all reached a point in their careers where they thought, "To hell with it." Yeah. I, I'm, I'm speaking out and the, the, you know none of that was without consequence um but obviously you know they they were in probably stronger positions than um isaac murphy would have been and it's really interesting isn't it how at, at certain moments black sportsmen and women and entertainers become because they're in the public eye this sort of cipher for how not just black audiences, but white audiences as well, imagine um, the role, the status of black people in society. And I think that's because he is, I think, um, in, he, and I think all those comparisons are so apt and I'm thinking about, uh, there's a white memoirist who later is talking about his childhood. And he says, when I was growing up, every, every boy I knew wanted to be Isaac Murphy. And I was talking to a friend of mine about it not that long ago. And I said, okay, well, that was, you know, that was in 1885, you know, um, when do you think that was next the case? You know, do you think it was Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis? And he said, no, I think it was Bo Jackson and Michael Jordan. So I think it's 100 years later. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how significant that would have been, Mm. simply because, you know, the the whole notion that white supremacy is in peril and hierarchy is in peril precisely because white children can can say, oh, you know, th- this guy's a hero, right? I, I want to be him. Mm. And how extraordinarily frightening that would have been for parents who were invested in racial hierarchy um, and, and how groundbreaking. 
that that was an extraordinarily dangerous in some ways position for him to be in. And even when it was not overtly dangerous, and I think this is something that that comes through in the book, I think it must have been exhausting mm-hmm. because he's constantly under scrutiny, right? He's he's usually the only, you know, at work, he's not the only black man. He's in a very, you know, vibrant African-American mm-hmm. community. But, you know, when he gets off work, because um, he's living uh, out of a suitcase for about eight months of a year, right? He's, he's on, he's uh, touring the tracks. I, he's often the only black man in a particular place. You know, he's the only black man who's allowed to stay in certain hotels. He knows that's because he is who he is. And he never talks about that, but he talks a lot about the physical demands of his profession. Mm-hmm. And I began to think that that was a way that he was, because he talks a lot about how tired he is. And and I'm sure part of that is physical, right? Because he's he's constantly trying to, um, lose weight and, and it is exhausting because there is no sort of nutritional support mm. for that. But I think it's also, it's, it's mental, right? I mean, it's, mm. he, he's emotionally and psychologically exhausted by the weight of representing black America. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and I don't see how that could be anything other than exhausting. Well, representing black America within two decades of the defeat of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, many, many people still in the in the the former Confederate states don't recognize that as a a legitimate loss at all. And and see it look for look to wage wage war by other means. Um, And, you know, by 1896, they, they kind of win. Horrible to say, but they they win, and he lives through all that. I mean, yeah. and, I, and I think the thing that was so interesting to me, thinking about specifically where he grew up and and where he lived for his entire life. You know, he he lives in Lexington, Kentucky, his whole life. That, um, because Kentucky is a border state, because it's not officially in the Confederacy, but it is a slave mm-hmm. state. It doesn't have a lot of the the sort of federal infrastructure that's imposed after the war to the degree that it's effectively imposed. And, you know, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But um, it really becomes this sort of site of this incredible amount of, yes, violence, like other places in the former Confederacy, but also um, legal attempts to sort of codify Jim Crow. And, and thinking about how close to him so many of those things were. So U.S. versus Reese, which is the, the Supreme Court case that uh, it's about poll taxes. And it establishes basically that if you've been, ta- if you've been, uh, if your vote has been suppressed mm-hmm. on the basis of a poll tax and they didn't nakedly say, we're not letting you vote because you're black, that that doesn't violate the 15th Amendment. And it essentially is a permission slip for using poll taxes, right, yeah. to, to suppress black votes. And that happens literally in his neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. It happens in the neighborhood he grows he grows up in when he's a teenager. Um, when he's an adult, um, one of his friends actually is the attorney who represents a black man uh, in a Supreme Court case about whether when there's been clear racial discrimination in jury selection, well, as long as they didn't say we're not having black men on the jury because they're black, yeah, then there is no racial discrimination, right? So it's it's all these 
it's all these sort of uh, ways in which the law comes in to sort of negate the effects of constitutional change after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I would imagine that, I mean, certainly today, right, ordinary people very seldom sort of are following major judicial decisions in the Supreme Court, except yeah. in extraordinary circumstances. But he's living in this small town that actually produces some of the major sort of legal changes mm-hmm. of his moment. And so he really has a, a front row seat to them. And also that that became a way that I was really interested in it because we have more records about him because he's famous. And so it's this way to sort of look at this this small place where people are having all of these debates and violent confrontations about these these very specific but just you know incredibly important um ways of structuring society based on race you mentioned oh we, we both mentioned the you know the the kind of the, the 1960s era and you mentioned kind of the era of like michael jordan so which is i guess from sort of like the 1990s onwards but what echoes are there of um, Isaac Murphy's story now here in in twenty twenty three? What 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 is the relevance? Do you think? I think that the the thing that struck me most is well, there are a couple of things. One is. And this is sort of less, you know, this is perhaps the, the less significant, but I think still important, mm-hmm. is that the way he and his colleagues are often discussed and sort of um, compared to one another, because he's the most famous African-American jockey by a long shot. But there, you know, there are a fair number of others, many of whom are younger than him, but but uh, a lot of whom are very successful the way they're compared to each other and the way he is often uh, sort of held up, not only as a sort of, you know, professional, you know, he's obviously very good at his job, but also the sort of insistence that he is, you know, he doesn't curse, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he does not hang out with other black people. All of this is a lie, right? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think he was a, um, I don't think he was a he was a great smoker or drinker or gambler, but you know, I mean that we know that the mm-hmm. man did all those things. But the the point was just to say, well, he's he's not like them, quote unquote, right? I mean, it's it's that it's okay for him to be famous. It's okay for, and and the way that he, sort of the the community is understood as sort of divided into respectable black men mm-hmm. and younger black men who were treated as arrogant or thuggish or mm-hmm. stupid or, you know, and I think um, you really see a lot of the templates for the way black professional athletes are, are talked about now, you know, that there's this allowance for some people who are perceived as sort of representative and respectable. And then there mm-hmm. are other people who are, who are stereotyped. Yeah. As, you know, in the opposite direction. And and particularly, I, I was taken with, uh, you know, they're talking about recruiting African-American jockeys. And they say, well, it's it's easier to do because there's, there, it's never a two-parent family. You'll always just deal with a single mother mm-hmm. who has a deadbeat partner. And, and they don't fuss with you about how dangerous it is. No. 
well, well, you could you could have this conversation now about professional football, right? Yeah. This stereotype that you know, middle class parents care if their kid is going to have a, a a concussion, and you know, and I thought, gosh, you know, this is this is from eighteen ninety, and you could you know you could talk about this today, but the the thing that really you know I think in some ways has a huge impact on his career is the concern that black athletic success could mean something besides black athletic success right feel discomfort when it starts to mean something besides that maybe Mm -hmm. and you know and i I keep thinking of various people who at, at times have you know have said things to lebron james about you know stay in your lane that kind of thing shut up and dribble yeah that, that kind of stuff and and i think you know murphy obviously has already gotten the message and he you know he does not talk about any of that but the the striking thing to me is mm-hmm. that even when he doesn't um you know you can find these sort of incidental um as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Mentions of uh, but especially because uh you know things like um the the overturning of the civil rights act of 1875 is happening while he's a you know a prominent professional uh in 1890 they're debating about whether they're going to allow federal intervention in when they can determine that you know there's been massive violent interference in an election right mm-hmm. that kind of stuff yeah and they'll be talking about Murphy in the racing coverage. And suddenly somebody will say, you know what? I bet he doesn't care if that election suppression bill passes. And you'll think, then why are you talking about it? Yeah. And it's, and I think it's because you can see this sort of like, for some reason for you, reporter, this synapse fires when you think about Isaac Murphy. Yeah. Because you're worried, you know, and so you want to say, don't worry. You know, you can watch him at the track. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but then it does matter. Then it's then it's frightening. So uh, perhaps one of the, the kind of the, the connections between then and now, and say the nineteen sixties in the middle, is that the black sportsman 
and the black entertainer has been, you know, white society have used them as a sort of like a pressure valve. You can be mildly troubled by, you know, the treatment of black people, but if there's, you know, look, there's a, a black person riding a horse or taking to the stage and they're doing fine, so look, things are kind of okay. But the moment they get involved in politics and say some uncomfortable truths, no, things are not okay. We are, you know, the the, the journey to equality is barely begun. That's the that becomes the, the the distressing bit, and so white audiences have a kind of they have a kind of a particular kind of uh, use for um, uh, for 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 black prominent black figures to kind of give the lie that things are sort you know either things are okay or all that conflict is sort of over and you don't need to worry about that anymore, and you particularly don't need to worry that that black entertainer or that black sports person is going to say uncomfortable things. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I think that's very fair. And, and it's, yeah. yeah. And I think one of the things that I, I learned learning about Murphy um, and, and so I start, you know, I worry about my own sort of, you know, participation is that when you talk about Murphy, you end up not talking about all these other people who are also, of course, you know, black people who are working in the industry sometimes with with great success. And then when we sort of in the conversation with Murphy when he dies in 1896, that one of the ways that that people have sort of ended that conversation um, is, you know, to to hold him up, you know, rightly so, because he's, you know, one of the one of the great sportsmen in, in the history of, of, of racing. And then sort of to end the story of African-American horsemen and to say, gosh, you know, Isaac Murphy died and then it was over, you know, mm -hmm. and and to do that, you know, and that, that was something I was really worried about doing to and, you know, and even to say, gosh, you know, racism is, is really part of why that happened. And, you know, this is really bad um, is to to erase the fact that, you know, there are all these all these people who stay in the sport who basically say, yeah, I'm, I refuse to be driven out. And those yeah. people, you know, it's, it's been 130 years. I mean, the, those people have, have now been in the sport for generations. And I, you know, I worry about the degree to which sort of even speaking about Murphy as this sort of great figure, which he was to some degree erases all those all those people who were around him and, and mm -hmm. who came after him. And so I'm, you know, in the, in the book, I'm trying not to do that, but, yeah. but I think that's, that's part of the process you're talking about, right? You, you, you tell this story and you say, gosh, you know, this was really great. Um, let's not talk about any of this other stuff. right? Yeah. Well, I mean, one, I mean, if, if you take the example of the, the second civil rights era, one of the kind of the great, thinking errors in particularly the way it's taught in, here in the UK is that, uh, you know, the, the story begins kind of like after World War Two, and it says, you know, these African-Americans returned home from serving their country and they're all feeling rather empowered and which is obviously, you know, an oversimplification in, 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 in many ways. Then, you know, uh, there was a, a bus boycott and um, Little Rock and then... Martin Luther King comes along and Birmingham and blah, 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 blah. 
Martin Luther King was murdered in 1968. And then it's sort of the story kind of fizzles out at that point. And the way it's taught in, in schools, I think it's got a bit better, but certainly for, for most of the time, it's like some things happened in the 70s and, you know, Nixon and Ford, Nixon and Ford and Carter did kind of some stuff. And then the 80s, you get some black entertainers and everything's sort of all right now. The end. And if you were, you know, a white British teenager, or not even not even a white British teenager, a non-white British teenager, British teenager, studying that, you come away with a sense that civil rights is sorted now. It's kind of fixed. It was all pretty bad. And then, you know, good conquered evil is, 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 is the narrative. And then you think, so what 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 happened to Rodney King then? In, um, and mm-hmm. and every other black person murdered uh, murdered uh, or beaten to death by the police at the roadside thereafter, and it's a story that doesn't make any sense. But we teach it, you know, with conviction every single year. Uh, and I think if you if you kind of rewind, there's this other big gaping hole from 1865. To uh, probably it's taught, you know, in, in, again in, in the UK. I'm not sure how it is taught in America. In the UK, probably you start talking about lynching and things during the 1930s, and but that's like a subsection of learning about the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. So there are these these huge, huge gaps in our understanding, and that they have this massive relevance to because they have they have a massive relevance now because I think there are significant numbers of uh, British people who look at the USA and people in America who look at the USA and go, what are you complaining about now? Is is this not all, I thought this was all fixed. Yeah, we have hip hop now. Yeah, I mean, you know. Beyonce is famous. I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're beefing about. <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not, it's not the fault of those people. You would be forgiven, you know, you'd be forgiven for thinking that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I suppose we're we're happy to embrace reassuring narratives, uh, and there are powerful powerful institutions happy to tell them. Just to, we got about ten minutes left, so I just want to talk about um, the the book. What were the what were the challenges of of writing this? I mean, mm-hmm. tell me about those. So the biggest challenge which is uh, he did not leave any personal papers that we know about, Ah. which is not a shock. I mean, for a man in his profession, Um, but that was very difficult because it's, it's, it's hard to gain access to what he's thinking. Right. Uh, And the way I sort of solved it was to, to look at, and, and this is where the internet is, is definitely your friend. Uh, and I think the, the book as it is could not have been written before maybe five years ago, or maybe even more recently, um, where you can do a couple of things. There are now, um, much more easily searchable digital, uh, sources in government documents mm-hmm. that let you, if not recover things that he is directly saying, 
then certainly recover things that uh, happened when he was a child. So the the things that his mother, for instance, did when he was a child, because she is his surviving parent, she's the one who's very much participating in sort of institutions of reconstruction, um, new government-supported banks for formerly enslaved people, the pension infrastructure for veterans' widows, which is what she is. Uh, and you can sort of gain a sense of her as this very determined freed woman uh, and and her determination for him. And that, that was very helpful. But the other, of course, great resource is newspapers.com, which allowed me to keyword search him mm-hmm. to really, first of all, find a few interviews that he had given that we had not seen before. And those are obviously filtered through reporters. So you're never quite sure what's going on there. But you know, to to get more more data, to have more sort of examples of something that that approximates his voice at least, mm. and because uh, there are about two big interviews that he's known to have given, and I uncovered a couple more, uh, and then also just to get a sense of what people are saying about him, and I think the way the book ends up sort of resolving itself because of that problem with the you know his voice is to say, okay, well, let's let's spend some time on what we can know of him based on things we know about other people who were his friends and his family. And then let's also think about what people are saying about him. Mm-hmm. And that, as you know, as we've been saying, like a, a dominant truth of his life is that he spends an incredible and exhausting amount of it representing things for people. Yeah. And what what that was like. Uh, and and how it was impossible to sort of do you know imbo- you know literally encompass all that in in one human body um, that was increasingly frail. Yeah, and just very quickly, what what are the circumstances of his death? What how how did he pass away? Was it related to the the, the business of riding? It's hard to imagine that it wasn't. Uh, he died of heart failure when he was thirty five. So, um, and I don't know that he had um, job-related bulimia that is, uh, you know, uh, was and is mm-hmm. a, a, a health problem that, that is sadly common with jockeys. And so a lot, a lot of his peers die of foreign body pneumonia because they have job-related bulimia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, pneumonia might have been, there's some discussion of pneumonia at the time of his death, whether that's related to the, to the heart failure. Mm-hmm. Um, we do know that he spent basically all of his professional life. So from the time he's 18 to the time he's 35, um, yo-yoing in weight between about 140 and 150 pounds and 105 to 110 pounds on right. a yearly basis. Wow. Uh, he does make the papers once when he manages to lose 12 pounds in 36 hours. And, you know, he, he talks about how agonizing the the process is how exhausted he is how tired he is um that he he literally can't bear to be awake uh and you know he can't bear to stand up and yet his job demands that he you know literally get on a thousand pound animal and and ride it at speed um and and he's very he's he's very open about that you know that that it's it's physically uh devastating Mm. and so it's it's hard to imagine that that is is not a yeah. part of what kills him. A, a a new kind of 
angle to the kind of the, the physical exploitation of, of African American people. There. Well, and it's a it's a it's a long sort of trajectory for him, right? Because he's he's brought up by men who would who would come up on the track in slavery. And and one of the things that I had found in my first book and that I had thought was just so profoundly, I don't, I don't even know the word for it, um, is this idea that when you're an enslaved jockey, there's literally another human being who owns your body who can yeah. say, this is, this is what it will weigh. This is what it will look like. And, and we will, we will shape your body into, you know, what, what I want it to be. It's, it's the most direct form of of that that i've ever seen and one of the ways they do that is by is by burying people in in piles of manure um to generate you know just an incredible amount of heat and so i mean this is this is the kind of stuff that he certainly would have grown up around Hmm. and even though you know nobody physically owns his body but if he wants to keep his job right which is incredibly important to him and to his family then they effectively do yeah then uh, yes i mean i think that's fair there we must finish catherine it's been a pleasure to hear from you and very quickly how can people um i'll put a link below but i'm taking it that the book is uh, is available for anyone that would like to purchase it yes uh, it is available in uh, i believe paperback hardcover ebook and there will be an audiobook option soon fantastic thank you so much and um i do hope that you'll be able to visit us again on the podcast to talk about other matters relating to uh, civil rights and the reconstruction era i would be delighted fantastic thanks so much